Hi guys, welcome to Moderate Party. In the aftermath of the Supreme Court ruling on abortion and New York's concealed carry permits, I've been thinking a lot about state legislatures. The state house doesn't get much love or attention from the average person. I mean, there was a time when the only state senator that I knew was Robert Lipton, the closeted state senator that Angela dates on the office. I texted a couple of my friends and I asked them if they could name their state rep without looking it up. And the response varied from, why do you always do this to me, to LOL, you know that I can't, all the way to my personal favorite, yeah, it's Cortez Mastro, followed immediately by a second text saying, oh shit, wait, state senator? No, with the shame emoji. And I'm not reading these texts to shame my friends or to out myself. I'm reading them because if you're listening to this episode, you are most likely in the same boat, unless you work in politics or consume news like you work in politics. But here's the thing. Congress is too politically divided to solve the problems that dominate our news cycle. But when you look to the state legislature, the problem is almost the opposite. Did you know that there's only two states in the entire country where the state legislature isn't controlled by one party? Consider that for a second. Do you remember how freaked out Democrats were when Republicans had the majority in the House, the Senate, and Trump was in office as president? People lost their minds. But in state legislatures, that is the norm. It's crazy to think that there are more states that have a super majority in their state legislature than divided government. That's wild. And that much agreement makes them a lot more effective at passing laws. But I'm not so sure that that's a good thing. Consider that one out of every 10 state legislators joined a far-right extremist group on Facebook. And at least 21 state legislators were at January 6th. So when Justice Alito says that topics like abortion need to be sent back to the states, who are we sending them back to? That's what I'll be discussing with today's guest, David Pepper. David is a lawyer, a writer, an activist, a former elected official, and served as chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party between 2015 and 2021. Most recently, David wrote a book called Laboratories of Autocracy. His book dives into the corruption and extremism that haunt the halls of state houses across the country and the threat that those state houses pose to democracy. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. David Pepper, thank you for coming on the show. Great. I'm glad to be with you. I want to start this off by helping our listeners understand the stakes that frame this conversation. So would you mind just walking me through the different role that state and federal governments play in the average person's life? This is sort of the heart of the problem is that we in politics overwhelmingly understand the federal government's role and the importance of it, but very few people appreciate the statehouse role. Um, both are really important. Both have important powers over us, but the statehouse has a much bigger role that people appreciate. The statehouses have, you know, they have jurisdiction essentially over everyday issues that we all care about, economics, health climate, education, as much power over those things in our lives as the Congress, at least in the states where we live. And then they also play a role, and they have from our founding in democracy itself, um, setting the rules of elections, framing and designing the districts that lead to representatives. We now know, uh, a lot of people didn't maybe before, that they are intensely involved in the electoral college process. Uh, the question will be, in the coming years, how much? Um, so the the point of the book is to say that that it is this, the, the state level at least is dysfunctional as Congress appears to be it has a far bigger problem at the state level because it has all this power but too few people know it 
And that turns out sort of a, from a political science perspective to be a real Achilles heel. That when, when an institution has a lot of power, but very little awareness, that leads to an accountability problem. And if you want to cause trouble, that's where you would do it. And that's what's happening. So state houses have a very important role to play. They can do great things, by the way. It's not only negative. In the right hand, state houses have served, as people have said in the past, as laboratories of democracy, pushing reforms. You know, state, states were where the, uh, the, the momentum for marriage equality began. Uh, Mitt Romney pushed uh, his form of a Romney care that became Obamacare in many ways. Uh, but we also see, and this is the part that's less talked about, even today when it's happening right in front of us, states can also play a very destructive role in our democracy. And, and sadly, that's what's happening right now. One of the points that you raise in your book that I'm hearing you echo now is this idea that people grossly overestimates how powerful their individual congressperson actually is. If you look at Congress and you think that there are so many extremists and they're passing all this crazy stuff, you should be comforted by how actually difficult it is to pass a truly extreme piece of legislation through Congress because it has to go through all of the non-crazies to become a bill. But if they're comforted by that, I think that you are absolutely correct that they should be terrified at how easy it is to pass extreme legislation through the statehouse. It's, it's terrible. I mean, we, we literally spend so much of our media time and attention, and the rest of our attention, freaking out about people who actually aren't passing laws. Mm -hmm. They're terrible people. I don't want them in the majority. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan. God help us if they're the majority this November, but they're not. And all we do is we spend all this time talking about them. And the reality is there are hundreds of people just like them, as crazy as they are, who are in majorities of state houses passing laws every day. Imagine if Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan were passing laws in Congress right now. What would those laws be like? They'd be insane. Mm -hmm. That's what's happened at the state level. And no one even knows. And, and, and no one even knows. And of course, they don't have filibusters at the state level conveniently. So they don't have they don't care that Democrats don't like these laws. But but it's Jim Jordan, if he was at the Columbus State House, would not stick out at all as being extreme. Mm. The, as we if you look closely at the laws from the state houses, they are doing exactly what the most extreme people at these at the Congress would do. But here's the problem. You never know. It's never get never gets media coverage. Often they have no one running against them. So we fo we're focused in too many ways, including the last couple of days on the wrong battle. No one's asking one question, which is not only anger at the U.S. Supreme Court, but who passed that law in Mississippi and yeah. how do we hold them accountable? Yes. Who passes the law in Tennessee that, that got rid of any age requirement on being married and how do we hold them accountable? Mm -hmm. All I hear from Washington, and this really frustrates me, every time something bad happens from a state house, almost every Washington leader literally says, and that's why you got to elect this U.S. senator or that U.S. senator. Well, of course we got to do that. But they bring the same federal hammer to every state level nail. Mm -hmm. And they never think, okay, yeah, we want to keep winning federal elections. But if we don't go back to the source of the problem, which is out of control state houses and solve it there, we're never going to stop what's happening. And I just think that, um, that it, you know, it's a real, it, it, but it starts with this fascination with federal, which again, I, I get that. But until we broaden our sort of to-do list to include 
going back to these state level people who are every bit as extreme but in majorities, we're going to keep seeing these never ending attacks on on democracy, on women's right to choose, on so many other things that we care about and really have taken for granted in many ways. You know, David, I was actually hoping that you could help me understand this really worrying trend that we're seeing a lot right now in the news. Uh, let's take Dobbs as an example. So Dobbs being the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The majority of Americans, 61 percent, support legal abortion in most, if not all, cases. But the Supreme Court is turning against the majority to push the view of the minority. If you look at the state houses, you're seeing the same thing. I'm hoping that you can help me get a better understanding of how this can happen, because to use Ohio, your home state, as an example, there's a bill in the Senate, and forgive me, I'm not sure if it's passed, that was basically trying to abolish the need to have a concealed carry permit. But 60% of people in Ohio support a concealed carry permit. But there's a very real possibility that that might pass, and it would pass without representing the views of the majority of the people in Ohio. How does that happen, and how does it continue to happen? It's not like we have, it's not like Ohio's an outlier, right? We've got these state legislatures all across the country that are passing more extreme laws that don't necessarily reflect their constituents. Not at all. I mean, it's minority rule in these states. And, and I, one of my worries about, about and, and I, don't, I don't sit around and, ju- I mean, I'm a big fan of California and New York. I'm not one of these, re- you know, Midwestern people who disses on the coast. Uh, you know, I've lived there and, and I enjoy all of our country. But I do worry that this is something that the people in D.C. and other places are missing. They watch these legislatures and they assume, well, this is what the people of those states stand for. Mm. And they don't. The re- if, if this was what the people of Ohio stood for, they wouldn't work so hard to gerrymander the Ohio legislature because they would know that what they're doing. If they thought this was what Ohioans stood for, they would happily talk about it and win in fair districts. The reason they have to gerrymander and they spend so much time rigging districts is because they know that actually in these states, getting rid of Roe v. Wade isn't popular. Insane gun laws aren't popular. In Ohio, we are a majority Roe v. Wade state. We are a state like almost every state that has wants common sense gun reform. That, that's, what, that's what's popular. So the, these things do not reflect these states. And my worry is that, that one reason that, that people in Washington don't raise more alarm about this is they just don't see that. They think, well, that's a more conservative state. They voted for Trump. These state houses are way on the fringe of where these states actually are, even if it's a mildly Republican state. Ohio is maybe a two or three point, four point Republican state. Mm-hmm. It's not an extreme state. We're not we're not way off off the charts when it comes to, you know, no one here wants or not no one, but very few people would ever support uh, banning abortion with especially with no exceptions in uh, in majority support Roe v. Wade. But I think that's getting lost that these legislatures are making it look as if that they stand for a state, which they don't. And one of the things I really worry about, this is what I love what Malik McMorrow did the other day. We are allowing these extreme state houses to convince America that they somehow represent a majority of the viewpoints of their states in this country to the point where people in the majority are being bullied into thinking they're minority. So they don't stand up and say, with confidence, we're against your book banning. We're against getting rid of abortion. We're against X, Y, and Z. The truth is when they stand and say that, they're standing for 60% of Americans or more. 
But somehow these warped state houses and how loud they are and consistent they are in places like Fox News have convinced the majority of Americans that this extremism represents a bigger group of people than it really does. But you just don't know it when you only watch these very warped state houses. So we've got to stop letting these people convince pe us, the sort of broader majority, that they somehow represent anything but a small minority. That's who they represent. That's why they go to state houses that are rigged to do their dirty work. Because if they were if they were in a real, viable, fair democracy, pushing these extreme issues would mean they never win elections. Okay, I want to take a quick timeout right here. David's about to talk about something called gerrymandering. And we're going to talk about gerrymandering a lot in this episode, actually. But that's a very wonky term that political nerds are familiar with, but people that have a life are not. So I just wanted to pause and give you some background information on gerrymandering. Here's what you need to know. The United States is not a direct democracy. We have a representative democracy, and that means that people like you and me, we don't actually vote on bills. We pick a representative to go to Congress and vote on our behalf, right? But your congressperson doesn't just represent you or your neighbor. They represent on average 700,000 people, which is a lot. But how do we decide which 700,000 people? Or if the population in California goes down, do they get to keep the same number of congresspeople? No. How many do they lose? All of these questions are decided by a process called redistricting. Redistricting is basically the process of drawing the lines that will determine which 700,000 people your representative represents. But populations fluctuate, right? Some states get more people, some states lose people. So we take a look at the districts and we redraw them after every census year. The redistricting process is normally handled by the legislature in every state, which makes it innately partisan. And that's where gerrymandering comes in. Gerrymandering is the process of manipulating the redistricting process to advantage one group or another. Normally, it's to influence your party, making it easier for your party to win more districts. Therefore, the party that's in power when they get to redraw the maps can often draw them in a way that helps them stay in power. Let me explain that a different way. Think about the Super Bowl. The two best teams in the country battle it out in the biggest sporting event of the year, at least in America. The stakes are high, emotions run hot, and both teams really want to win. You're going to see more penalties, unnecessary roughness, offsides, sports words, blah, blah, blah. These are football things, I think. But that's why we have referees. Referees are there to make sure that if somebody breaks a rule deliberately or accidentally, they don't get to benefit from that. The referees are there to keep us honest and make sure that the game is fair, that no team is playing dirty and no team has an unfair advantage. When you make it to the final game of the season, the Super Bowl game, these calls by refs are critically important. But what if instead of having referees, we're just gonna let one of the two teams that are competing referee and enforce the rules? Do you think that they're gonna call a penalty on themselves to help the other team? Because I sure do not. Do you think that they're going to be particularly critical of the other side? Because I definitely do. It would give the team that got to enforce the rules an unfair advantage. In this analogy, the referees act like an independent redistricting commission. This means that the redistricting process is not handled by the state legislature, but instead by an independent commission. Keeping it honest. Currently, only seven states use an independent redistricting committee. That means that only seven states 
are letting a referee enforce the rules of the Super Bowl. The other states leave it up to the state legislature, meaning that if Republicans or Democrats have the majority in your state legislature, they get to enforce the rules of the game. No referees. Doesn't sound very fair, right? Now, gerrymandering is a bit of an art form, but the most nefarious schemes tend to rely on one of two strategies. They either crack apart key constituents or they pack them together to dilute their influence. Cracking and packing. Both parties have been guilty of gerrymandering in the past. For example, in Oregon, Democrats cracked apart the city of Portland. Those voters, among the most liberal in the country, are spread between three districts, which snake south, east, and west from the heart of the city, in a way that creates three solidly Democratic districts. So in this example, what they're doing is they're drawing the district to make sure that they spread out the Democratic voters enough that they are the majority across all three districts. Now, in Tennessee, Republicans have proposed cracking Nashville for a different purpose. They want to divide the Democratic votes between several districts so that they have no chance of winning. In the Tennessee example, Republicans know that there are a lot of Democrats in Nashville. And what they're going to do is they're going to divide them up to make sure that they are the minority in all of the districts, diluting their power. Now, in North Carolina, Republicans have used a different strategy. This one is called packing. Now, Charlotte, North Carolina is a predominantly Democratic city, meaning that Democrats will likely carry that district. So Republicans packed the voters in Charlotte into just one district, meaning that Democrats will win that district, but Republicans will win all of the surrounding areas. If they drew a more honest map, what, would, what you would likely see is that Charlotte would be divided up into several districts instead of just packed into one. When you look at a map of congressional districts, you need to keep an eye out for districts that overwhelmingly favor one party. Those are likely to be a packed district or districts that divide a natural constituency like a city or a neighborhood between districts. That is likely to be a cracked district. The worst thing about gerrymandering is that it allows politicians to choose their voters instead of letting voters choose their politicians. Now let's get back to David. The reason they go to state houses that are gerrymandered is because that's the way you push a minority worldview and continue to stay in office. That's why, again, that's why Mitch McConnell tells Rick Scott to stop talking because <laughs> he knows, Mitch McConnell does, like the Koch brothers, that their agenda is actually very unpopular. So they use state houses to get it done. I'm glad that you brought up gerrymandering because in the 2020 election, we heard a lot about the election being stolen. There were a lot of different theories as to how, you know, voter fraud, fake ballots, etc. But I think that if you really want to steal an election, you do it when you draw the district. That's exactly what they're doing. Now, let's be clear. It's gone on for our, our nation's history. Um, and so there's a there's a sort of a spectrum of it. But in the last decade in particular, it's gotten so much more extreme that I think they, they have, in a lot of states, and I go through this in great detail in the book, they have set things up so that they can never lose, even when a majority of voters in that state want the other side in charge, they do not lose. You know, Wisconsin, in 18, the voters of Wisconsin by nine points voted for a Democrat 
for the state house over Republican. But this, the rigging of the elections for gerrymandering meant that Rep- Wisconsin Republicans controlled two thirds of the seats. So they're literally converting minority status to strong majorities in these state houses. But the second thing that gerrymandering has done far more than even just warping who's in charge and not reflecting the majority of that state, they have basically come up with a system where almost to a person, not a single one of them has ever been in a real election. Okay, that's a big claim. Can you talk me through that a little bit? Not a single one of them feels any accountability. And if you look closely at Ohio's gerrymandering fight, which has just been this nightmare that never ends, the fight isn't about control of the legislature. Not even the Democrats have put, to, put forward maps that would give Democrats control. Based on the numbers the last 10 years, that would actually be an unreasonable thing if Democrats said, hey, our map would give us 55 seats out of 99. That would not, that would not be a fair map. And Democrats don't claim that. So Republicans are rejecting Democratic maps that would give Republicans control, but the, the, the control would be by the margin that reflects the political breakdown of Ohio, somewhere like 54, 45 or something. Republicans, that's not good enough for them. Why? Because that kind of map makes six or seven of them actually be in competitive districts. And this shows you what they care about. Their maps, the ones they are insisting be included, not a single member of the Republican majority would be in a competitive district. They don't want any one of their members to be accountable. Because the minute you start having accountability, the politics changes. That accountable member would say to their leadership, I can't vote for that crazy gun law. I can't vote for a, 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 a bill that bans abortion or bans abortion with no exceptions because I'm in a swing district and I would lose. So the, it's not just about you know, not reflecting the voters, which clearly is not happening in a lot of states. It's about the need they know they have for total lack of accountability. And again, these are people who are their entire careers because we have eight-year term limits. They've lived in a world with no accountability all this time. The idea that some of them would be an actual competitive 50-50 district scares them, or maybe actually a district that Democrats are favored one, you know, by one or two points. That idea is so scary to them because it sort of pulls the rug out from their extremism. Because all of a sudden, they don't have a unified front even in their own caucus because they actually have to face voters. So yeah, the gerrymandering is toxic. And I don't think people appreciate how much it is warping politics because, you know, I say this a, a lot there. We have, we, we place, we believe that certain incentives in a, in a healthy democracy lead to good behavior, you know, an incentive to be for things that people support, an incentive to deliver good public outcomes, an incentive not to be corrupt. These are things that we assume if you're in a real democracy a public official wouldn't want to be for things that deliver terrible public outcomes or that were deeply unpopular. Well, it turns out in a world of gerrymandering where you intentionally have no democracy and no close districts, every one of those incentives is on its head. You don't care about bad public outcomes because you get elected no matter what. You actually have an incentive to be for very unpopular things. Why? Because that extremism is what keeps you from being challenged your next primary. So all the incentives of good public service get get reversed. And that's what a lot of states like Ohio have seen. Um, and by the way, many other states beyond Ohio, I, I talk to people every day from these other states because they all re- re- write to me saying, you described our life too, which was sort of my goal. 
But it turns out that 10 years of democracy has led to a downward spiral of behavior because all the incentives are upside down. And that's why it always seems it does get worse and worse and worse as these politicians just keep, they're chasing very negative incentives versus having incentives that lead to good behavior. Why? Because what is creating the bad incentives? Is it a situation where uh, bad behavior begets bad behavior? Or do you think that at the state party level, the party is creating these bad incentives? I think once the structure has no accountability back to the people, mm-hmm. it's, it's inevitable. It, 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 and all the people involved, even if they didn't think that way when they started, they will see, and now they've seen for 10 years, you can do a very unpopular thing and get reelected no sweat. You make certain private players happy. They help you make sure there's no issues. If you ever cross the line and work with a Democrat, you will lose. If you ever say, if, if you even if you didn't like that extreme gun bill, if you voted no on it, that had, that means you voted with the Democrats, which is going to mean you're challenged in the next election. And even people who corrupt, unless they literally on wiretaps with the FBI, get reelected. So mm-hmm. it, the institutional incentives are all upside down. And that le- and what, what has happened for 10 years, I can't find anyone who really defies them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that shapes everything in the system, party and individuals. Um, and it kind of doesn't matter who the people are. One of the, one of the things that's quite sobering is the individual politicians in the state houses, they don't matter. You know, Democrats always are looking for the next Obama, you know, (laughs) the man who, or woman who excite us and, and, and get us motivated in the system, in these state houses, they don't care about that. They don't care if the person resigns in scandal or is term limited or is the worst speaker they've ever seen because they all react to the same incentives the same way. So even if that person resides in scandal, the next person does the same thing. And I think that's Democrats' big disadvantage, too, is that Democrats are looking to be inspired and Republicans are looking to win. Yeah. And they're and they care about power. And they know and they have a system now that if in if they have the right people in the right positions, their power is is sort of untouchable. And so. Yeah, like we've seen it. We've had three speakers in five years in Ohio. They each kind of keep getting in trouble. The next speaker does the same thing. Like it just, mm-hmm. it's, there's no difference. Um, and um, so it, it really is when you ask why, I think in the end, and I didn't, I didn't think this when I started my book, but as I thought of, you know, when you write, you think, I think it's that in the end, if you take a second and put your mind into the mind of these gerrymandered Republicans, They've never been in real elections. They know it. So real elections scare them. And are you defining a real election as a competitive election? Competitive, yeah, a competitive race. I mean, I've been in competitive races where you don't know when you announce if you're going to win. You actually announce, like I did for county commissioner in Cincinnati when Hamlin County was a little red. You announced thinking, I will have to do a perfect race to win. Mm-hmm. They've never felt that uncertainty. They pretty much know that as long as they're the Republican candidate, they're going to win. Uh, now, if you all of a sudden say to that person, your entire identity in life, you think you're this very important person with all this power and everyone tells you in Columbus how great you are and gives you awards, you may lose it all because you're going to be in a competitive district. That scares the heck out of them. 
One, it's accountability. Two, because they actually didn't run a campaign before. They've never had to do the things that normal candidates do that you and I think about politics. They pretty much were assured their election. It's almost like a reappointment for most of these people. A whole lot of them don't even have opponents in all these states. Hundreds of them can do the craziest things and have no opponents. So they're already scared of democracy because it's they're in power having not experienced it. And then secondly, when they look around, they see that every, you know they're rewarded by doing favors to you know the for-profit charter schools. <laughs> and the people back home in their districts have no idea that the reason the local schools have less money is because the state house far away gave some of that money to for-profit charter schools that are disasters. So they see the reward from the for-profit school, but the people back home, they don't connect the struggling local district with them. They, they blame the local school board. They blame anybody. And so they, over time, they can just see the system exactly what you do to get ahead. I mean, and exactly what you do to get behind. And almost none of them are, are going to defy that set of incentives. The problem is the incentives are all upside down and leading that behavior. And um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, we're seeing it, it, but a lot of it goes back to something that I didn't emphasize in the book as much as I think now. Why? Total lack of accountability. They are seeing it. There's no legal accountability. There's no political accountability. And, and in any system, I don't care if it's business or, you know, media, if you have no accountability, the behavior gets goes off the charts pretty quickly. You know, if, if, if you're, uh, you know, if you're on TV and your ratings are terrible, you, you're not there much longer. Well, mm-hmm. these are people whose ratings are awful. Their public outcomes are terrible. They're more extreme, but since it doesn't matter, they just keep doing it. Uh, and so any system without accountability really goes off the rails. And, and so at this state house level, just like we're seeing with January 6th, they have been violating the people's will for years there's no accountability and that's also i think once people see that they can keep pushing more extreme more terrible public outcomes but there's never anything that happens to them they just keep going there's no incentive to go the other way and i think our system has a very difficult time handling proud corruption right we know how to handle envelope full of money type corruption right But it's much harder when it's stuff like what you were talking about, how we treat a state official. We treat them nice. We feed them well. They get to go to exciting places or do exciting things. Those are bribes to some degree. Totally. I mean, there's there's we, we have the more direct envelope corruption here. The whole system is basically the way I describe it. It's one massive in a lot of these states, at least. It's a massive transfer of public assets to the private, fueled by dollars that come from that newly acquired private, you know, public money, the private hands that go back to the politicians. It's it, the entire notion of public service of these states is corrupted. And so the motivations of these politicians is not what you and I would think about public service. And again, because the incentives are all screwed up, they don't have, there's no connection between electoral outcomes and improved public outcome. There just isn't. And so they are spending a whole lot of their time on, you know, private interests who are right in the state houses seeking their, seeking their uh, support and watching closely while the people back home who care about public outcomes 
don't really know what's happening. It's a massive corruption of, of public service is how I'd say it. So if I understand your argument, it's basically that whoever pays the most attention is who holds them accountable. And if corporate interests or party interests are the ones paying attention to the state legislature, that's who they serve. And if the public were to pay more attention, if I'm understanding you correctly, yeah. public service would improve. Yeah, but we're talking about a, a massive level of public awareness. We we need. I mean, again, like this is gonna, this is a bad example, but you know, Will Smith got in one week more attention than the State House Attack on Democracy has gotten in, in a year. I mean, yeah, okay. Marjorie Taylor Greene gets more attention in a few days than all her anti-democratic counterparts who are actually taking democracy get ever. And until we figure that out, um, yeah, it, 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 though, again, always think about what the other side's thinking. Who loves what I just described, the Koch brothers? They love, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gaetz are the greatest thing ever for the Koch brothers. They probably think they're the two biggest fools they've ever seen. But they're the single greatest distraction from where most of their agenda is being is being done. And so, yeah, the lack of awareness, the lack of competitive districts, the, the media cratering in a lot of these places. So it's never covered, even like it would have been 20 years ago. That all adds up to being the perfect combination of things that allow state houses to, to be to be, um, you know, the, the, the place that I call them sort of these unaccountable fortresses attacking democracy nonstop. It, it again, I, I did a long tweet storm yesterday. We're talking about a level of lawlessness that, that you know, Viktor Orban of Hungary would be impressed by. I mean, in Ohio right now, we have a legislature that has ignored the Ohio Constitution five straight times. They're just defying the Ohio Supreme Court's clear orders. There are a couple national stories that have been about it, but almost nothing. Here in our own country, a total erosion of the rule of law, as much as any country, if we saw it in the country, we'd say, my God, that, that legislature is just ignoring the Supreme Court of its, of its own state. In another country, we would say that's totally lawless. That's, that's just the beginning of the end of your rule of law, or, or it's not even the beginning. It's sort of the late stage. It happens here. It's literally, it's either a he said, she said story or no story at all. And so the lack of awareness is, and, and again, they bank on that. They count on that. And, and the, the erosion of local media, the mm -hmm. distraction of everything else, that all contributes to this really, you know, low level of attention at, at the source of where democracy is really being undermined. Yeah, and I think you've, you've hit Republicans really hard, um, which I think is a fair hit, but just... I have a lot of Republican listeners on the show, so in fairness to them, I would say that I live in a state where Democrats have full control, and as a result, they also suffer from a lack of accountability. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, so I'm not, I'm not a believer in both sides, although being equally bad, I think that from what I can tell, the California legislature is not attacking voting rights. It's not like right. trying to make it harder for people to participate in democracy. Yeah, I take your point on that. But they will also pass laws that affect virtually every business or every worker in the state and then exempt that law from oversight, even though it would remain in place for six years. So I'm not saying that it's the same by any means, but I'm not saying it's good either. Unaccountable government is bad everywhere. Uh, yes. a, a highly gerrymandered statehouse 
of either party mm-hmm. will lead to worse outcomes and will lead to lack of accountability and all that comes with it. So I, I think that the solution to gerrymandering is national. It's federal standards that keep everybody from doing it. And I, I you know California's democratic state, you're going to have a democratic legislature, Illinois democratic state, but we, you want to have people, enough people in competitive districts. So there's some, there's some accountability in the system. Now, again, not every district's going to be competitive either. There's nothing wrong with a district that's not competitive, but in the mix of all of them, you need to have overall representation mm-hmm. and enough people who are in elections that there's actually some feedback mechanism with the people. And so, you know, and if any party has a system set up where that doesn't happen, my guess is you will see poor results. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I also would say that I, I, at least the states I see, um, you don't see that the true lawless behavior. Here's an example. New York had its district struck down the other day by the New York Supreme Court or the, the Court of Appeals, they call it, mm-hmm. or maybe Superior Court. I can't remember the name of it. I don't believe the New York legislature is just going to ignore the ruling. Mm-hmm. Just ignore. Well, that's what happens in Ohio. It's truly lawless. Most state houses, they follow court orders. Mm-hmm. But in these extreme state houses where they've been getting away with being lawless for years, they just don't follow the rule. They just don't follow court orders. They, they've given up on the rule of law. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm, in my book, you'll see, I call on Democrats in Democratic states to make sure that their states are exhibiting, you know, pro-democracy policies, mm-hmm. fair districts, broad voting rights. That's good for democracy everywhere. So to listeners who are not, you know, who are not Democrats, everyone needs to do better. It doesn't say everyone's doing equally bad because that's, I don't think, reflects the reality. Um, but my hope is that, that the, the, the people that care about democracy are broader than just Democrats. And I've had people who, who've been helpful with my book who are Republicans or former Republicans who agree, who may disagree with me on a lot of things when I'm a Democrat, but who do agree with me that we need a country with fair elections where people who lose those elections, whoever they are, accept the results. And that all isn't, that's not only an issue around January 6th, that's an issue around uh, districts too. I mean, basically, gerrymandering, are, that's essentially a very complicated way of saying we do not accept the results that would come from a fair election on fair districts. So we're going to predetermine the election in advance. And my hope is there are a lot more people than just Democrats who see that's different from January 6th, but that's the same attitude of we don't want to accept results of a fair election. What role do you think that self-sorting plays in this? Like, what would you say to the person that says gerrymandering isn't, it's a problem, but it's not the worst problem? Because what's actually happening is that we are self-sorting in a way that makes races less competitive. Republicans are moving to redder and redder states, which is making Democratic states bluer and bluer or vice versa, thus creating less competitive districts because everyone living in that district is ideologically more, more, because everybody living in that district is more ideologically similar. What would you say to that argument? The answer is this comes up, you know, this is one of the, the quick um, excuses that these uh, folks gerrymandering make. The truth is, yes, people sort, but sorting does not explain 
the incredible partisan gerrymander that places like Ohio have. It, of course, it changes things a little bit. Do you think it complicates them? Uh, it complicates the rhetoric. And it complicates maybe a little bit. But the truth is, I've seen the, the conversation between the, the sort of data experts and the politician where the politician says, I've seen, I was in a, a hearing where the politician said, well, what about the sorting? And the, and the data expert says, this map that you've presented is not explained at all by sorting. This is a partisan gerrymander. That map over there is a completely constitutional map that follows other criteria. It's on the same population that you claim requires a gerrymander, and they've shown that that has nothing to do with why you gerrymandered. So I think it is one of the things they like to say, uh, but but there are many, many maps that, f- that fulfill all the criteria of meeting these breakdowns and, these, and, the, and the data points that are on that so, you know, on a population that is self-sorted to some degree. And, and one one other um, one other point here is um, that's especially true when the sorting right now is actually quite interesting. Where you're seeing a lot of areas of a lot of states, the sorting is sort of benefiting Democrats, and that there's many Democrats now in suburbs that used to be Republican. So that sorting should lead to a, a lot more suburban democratic pickup and swing districts uh as much as as much as you know more so than in the past so it also goes both ways uh but but statistically and in a close look at data has shown that sorting does not explain in any way you know the fact that republicans drew only competitive districts for one party and zero for themselves that's just raw power grab unaccountable gerrymandering which is what they see. I don't object to the fact that the maps in Ohio are insane or even Wisconsin. That's another good example. I think partisan gerrymandering happens is terrible. I think that something that complicates the task of drawing a fair map or no, let me rephrase, drawing a competitive map is that we are moving away from people that disagree with us. A lot of the Republicans I know are talking about moving to Texas because they feel like that's where people have the same values as them. And what that leaves you with is a redder Texas and a bluer California. Yeah. Now, here's the question. Does that lead to a lot of districts that are uncompetitive? Sure. And again, that's okay. I mean, if you have a very red rural area, you would have to gerrymander it to not have it be a very Republican district. Yeah. That's, and that's fine to have, like, if you have a 70-30 district, because that pretty much reflects that area, that's life. And I would never complain. The gerrymandering is happening on the edges where, you know, you got 40 districts that are Democratic districts because of sorting, let's say, and 40 that are Republican. The other 19 are the key, where there's a mix, you know, where suburbia maybe meets rural or where suburbia has a mix of both. That's where the partisan gerrymander happens, where they will take those 19 and break them down so that, again, they win 11, no trouble. And the eight that we get, and this is what they're doing, are all really close. So the only races that are up for grabs in an election are eight Democratic districts. Each Democrat may lose and they'll never lose. So the right. sorting, sorting, I'll, I'll revise my initial answer. It may lead to parts that are more one-sided and that's, that's life. 
And, and unfortunately, I think that's that makes for more of a partisan polarized community. But that's that's life too. But that the gerrymander is happening still in places where the decision is made. You could have nine districts of each side. Each may have five competitive districts, or you could figure out how to do it so that it's not nine each. It's more of one side and only the other side faces competitive districts. That's where the gerrymandering happens. Um, and, and, but overall, I do agree. I mean, I, I, when people say, we got to move, like that does reward them with, with what they want. I mean, and, and then all of a sudden we have a very red and a very blue, we have a very blue states, very red states, and that is a problem. But the intense partisan gerrymander, that's in an intentional decision separate from sorting. So in your view, is the solution to partisan gerrymandering a federal standard for independent redistricting, meaning that the federal government tells the states that they have to allow for an independent redistricting process, not a partisan one? Yeah, but it's in it's in the current it's in the current legislation that's being filibustered the Senate. It would lock Mm -hmm. in the very types of criteria I mentioned where Mm -hmm. you have to reflect your state, the breakdown you have to not unnecessary split communities it's these are enforceable standards by law like our supreme court is enforcing if the state would follow it and it's just sitting there and so when i hear republicans complain about new york or california again if you have republican listeners who don't like gerrymandering know that they have republican senators they call right now and urge to pass a bill that would stop it um and and you know they just need to do it um, and Republicans don't, they don't support the anti-gerrymandering legislation. So I hear all the time, well, what about Illinois? What about New York? Democrats currently support legislation in the Senate that would stop gerrymandering in New York and Illinois. Mm-hmm. It's the Republicans that won't vote for it. They're filibustering it. So yeah, it's sitting right there. And if we had it, the race to the bottom where everyone gerrymanders would be over. And all of a sudden... Mm-hmm we'd have a lot more accountability at our state house level, but also at a congressional level. How nice would that be? It'd be beautiful. <laughs> um, one thing that's been on my mind a lot in the fallout of the decision on Roe v. Wade is the friction between our national identity, our national values, and states' rights. Because one of the things that I've heard from people that are pro-life and support overturning Roe v. Wade is that giving it back to the states lets them decide based on the cultural values of each state. And I have some friction with that because I think that human rights are not up to a vote and they shouldn't be. And I think that our constitution supports that we should not legally limit life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But states, or but it also says that we should support states' rights. And I think that there's a built-in friction there. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that. No, I mean, that, I, I agree with what you said. I mean, there are certain fundamental rights, equality, I think clearly privacy, um, others, First Amendment, that that our country has for generations said, although not all the founding, because the founders had a very different world they were living in, but they understood this concept. Women couldn't wear pants. I think that's relevant. <laughs> right, exactly. They that are beyond what we should want politicians to undermine or get rid of. And so I think, you know, this is why, to me, you know, when when marriage equality became the law of the land, there were some politicians who said, well, don't do that. 
have a referendum in every state on it. Well, no, I think Americans came around to the idea that that is such a, a, a protected right that it should be enshrined in the Constitution and not something we put up for a vote. Um, mm-hmm. So the move to, quote, let states do it is basically saying that that item, that that topic, we don't think it's worthy of protection, regardless of of how people might vote in that legislature. So that, and I think that, that this is why this is why you know, these, these are such huge decisions. OK, it's not just about that. That's the first issue. But here's how it's even worse than that. What is something protected or is it something that we subject to the democratic process as to whether or not it's the right? That'd be that's already a big, a massive decision. But number two, we need to stop pretending that these state houses reflect a democratic process. Because and, and this is where the Supreme Court rhetoric really bothers me. They know. They know because they've written it in some decisions. That these state houses, because of gerrymandering, voter suppression, no, and everything else we talked about, they don't reflect a, dem- a small d democratic dialogue in those states. They represent extremism way beyond the mainstream of that state. So let's say they did subject abortion rights to the politics of that state. In these states, that's not the debate that's going to happen. This the debate will happen with extremists who are completely unconnected from the people of those states. So we're not just putting that you, your rights and every woman's rights or every you know, LGBTQ member's rights up for a a small d democratic debate in those states. We're putting their rights in the hands of people who aren't even connected back to the democracy of those states because of the institutional t- problems I talked about. So we'll have a bunch of extremists debating rights in the state and not a democrat. You know, it would be better reflected through a referendum of that state. Yeah. In the state yeah. house than the state house process, but it's going to be, so basically they are, they are literally giving over to a broken non-democratic system, the deliberation over what rights we all get. So it's, it's doubly terrible. And what's so frustrating for me is these justices know that if you read the recent decisions around gerrymandering, even Roberts and Kavanaugh say, oh yeah, democracy is pretty screwed up in, in our states. But we're not a, we're not the court that should deal with that. State level people should deal with that. But they're acknowledging that state houses are basically broken in the way they write the most recent opinion. But that's why this is the the uh, whether it's you know, LBTQ issues or equality, whether it's whether it's abortion rights, they're not even they're not giving it over to states' rights. They're giving it over to broken states that are undemocratic that are motivated by all the extremist warped incentives I talked about to be the decider on basic rights. And, and that's so much worse, as bad as it is to just say it's not a fundamental right, which is terrible, to say it's in the hands of extremists who are sealed off from their voters because of gerrymandering is like a horror show. Um, mm-hmm. and, and these are people, again, I think maybe 10% of Americans, maybe, Agree with the notion of no of abortion being outlawed, even in the except a case of rape or incest, maybe ten percent. But in these unaccountable state houses, that will be the law in most of these states, because again, they don't reflect their state. So that's why this is the combination of gerrymandering and this movement to give rights over to states is a horrific one-two punch to basic rights and, and democracy. How's that to, to sober think- everyone up? 
Wasn't that just a punch in the teeth? But I think that you're absolutely right because the opinion makes it sound like we are going to have a referendum in every state asking people if they think that we should protect this right or not. But that's not it. Isn't what happened. And and a lot of them have already passed these trigger laws. Mm -hmm. Again, these are extremist, non-democratic. I mean, I call the book Laboratories of Autocracy not to be cute. That's what they are. That's what they've become. The reason they all pass things that look alike is because they share them all and they learn from everything they do. And a lot of these states have already passed the laws that will be triggered immediately. These weren't a -hmm. a result of of a broad debate in their state. These aren't a result of a referenda, although in some states, maybe there will be some. These are a result of extremist institutions, totally unconnected back to the people through gerrymandering, no accountability for most of them, that are pushing through extremist laws that don't reflect their state. That's what the Supreme Court is subjecting all of us to if it if it makes this decision, uh, which I'm afraid it, it will. Gee, so let's take a a less uh, hot button okay. issue because I know that everybody is very focused on Roe right now. But like, let's look at guns. Right. We have different gun laws in every state, and some of the arguments that you will hear is that those reflect the values of the people that live in that state. But then we have this idea about our national identity, which is we are a country that would do something about mass shootings. Those two things are in conflict. You see all this pressure on Congress, like do something, do something, do something. And then the pushback is that that would violate states' rights. How do you think that we navigate that? The the friction between our national identity and our states' rights? Again, I, I think if you, I think that the broader consensus of this country very clearly, every poll reflects it. And it again, say it's like Ohio and Texas, supports a general notion that people have a right to bear arms, but also support the notion that that's something to be regulated in common sense ways. Background checks, mm-hmm. training, people not walking around with Uzis or other extreme <laughs> weapons. This is one that I think, you know, I think you have, again, it's kind of like, it's sort of like the abortion debate. One, the court has taken a much different view in the last couple of years about the ability to regulate that seems to be extreme. Mm -hmm. But secondly, if you had real democracy in states, I think you'd probably have gun laws that would would reflect that common sense middle ground. Again, Mm. 10% of, Gun owners disagree with background checks. Yes. Okay, that that's Ohio. Ninety percent of Ohioans want background checks. That's not what yeah. the law is. So I think on, it, at the state level, gun issue at least. I think that if you had a real democracy and you didn't have all these warped incentives that give the very intense pro gun lobby, you know, all at once out of these legislators, I think you probably have some healthy balance of people can can get a gun but it would be after a background check and there'd be other reasonable you know child uh, safety locks and all that stuff that that would reflect where most people are and the reason you don't have any of that is because in these states democracy is just totally broken um so i i really think that um that that's just again now why why is this happening because the people who want all these intense things, no abortion at all, anywhere, laws that are for guns that put guns everywhere, 
they know that what they're for is unpopular. They know it. Mm -hmm. They know in a fair democracy, those positions would not succeed in repeated elections. That's why they do it all through state houses. And that's why they're all so aligned about the need to gerrymander state houses. Because in a world of regular democracy where it, where it was fair and the districts were fair and everyone voted, they know they wouldn't be able to get all the, that they want. And this is true of like trickle down economics and guns and it's true of everything. That they need undemocratic state houses to pass through an agenda that would never survive in a robust democracy. Or even to win an election. Yeah, they wouldn't. If they were in a 50-50 district with terrible public outcomes, schools failing, they had voted in gun laws that are 90% of people oppose. They voted in, you know, they voted to ban abortion, no, no, no exceptions. In a 50-50 district, that candidate would lose terribly. In the current system, that candidate often doesn't even have an opponent. Can you imagine how great that person feels? They did all these incredibly extreme things. And come election, come filing day, they don't even have an opponent. I mean, it's like a, a sugar high of unaccountability. And that's the world of many of these states. That they do things that would, they would never survive a real election, but they waltz to a new four or two years without even thinking about it. I mean, that's, what, that's the current status quo. And that's why, again, not to be negative about people who are so many things I agree with, but every time we have one of these things happen, these decisions, Every U.S. senator, all they say is, and now we got to elect this person senator. And, and, and I agree with that. But Elizabeth Warren needs to say, or whoever else, and that's why we have to be more aggressive in running for the state house in Mississippi. And that's why we need to field a candidate in every district in Ohio. Because if we continue to allow these state houses to be the source of the attack on democracy because they have no accountability, we will never win. You know, think about, think about 2020. Democrats se celebrated 2020. We want everything. The presidency, the, the Senate, the House. Does it feel in 21 like democracy was winning? No. Why? Because the battlefield of Democrats is too narrow. When, and that should be a wake-up call. If you think you won everything, but a year later you're not winning, it means you're doing something very wrong. It means you've defined winning the wrong way. And until Democrats define winning as more than just those three branches of the federal government, or the two, really, um, until they see that winning has to mean meaningful progress at the state level, they will continue to lose. And that's why I wrote my book, and that's why I talk about it as much as I can. And I, I watch Washington today, and I never hear any broadening of the battleground except to just keep hitting the federal hammer over and over and over when, again, the source of the issue problem is coming from state after state after state that we're not even running candidates in dozens and dozens of districts. So a lot of states are in primary season right now. Yeah. And we're heading into the midterms. So what do you think are the most important things for people to do going into the midterms to hold their government more accountable? I mean, register, register everybody you know. Um, if you're in a swing state especially, think about everything you do every day. Don't just, don't just sort of do it through your political group. If you're, if you're uh, I mean, registered turnout is the great equalizer in the end, more than anything else. Um, so start off by thinking about everything. What's your footprint in this world? 
you know, do you, do you work at a coffee shop? Do you run a small business? Do you, um, are you on the board of a homeless shelter? Is that institution registering everyone who walks in the door or not? If they're not, why not? They should be. Many of these institutions are, the, are serving the very people who are often not registered, often because they're purged. Um, mm -hmm. Register, register, register. Get people on the rolls. And then once they're on the rolls, use those same footprints to keep them involved so they know about early voting. They know why it matters. Uh, so that's one piece. That's frankly the most important. So many of this of our problem would be solved if we had more people registered and voting. Secondly, though, go beyond thinking about, again, yes, I want Tim Ryan to win this Senate seat. I'm going to work very hard for him in Ohio. Um, but go beyond federal. If you're in a state that's close at your, legis at your legislative level, figure out who in your state could actually help change the outcome in that state house race. If you're in a state that's not close, look at a state that is. Arizona is only two state districts, state, state house districts away from Democratic majority. Arizona is the place that had those phony audits for months because of their state house. Win two Democratic seats and there's a Democratic state house in Arizona. If you're in California and you're frustrated by what's happening, figure out who in Arizona you want to help. Help some of those swing candidates pick up that state house in Arizona. So think about other places you can make a difference. Help those people. You know, get in their car and help them. Give money, whatever. Um, there are a lot of groups around this country and many in California that are creating giving circles. And they raise money and give the money to swing statehouse candidates in other states. If you've got a group that wants to do that, um, go to me, uh, follow me on Twitter, David Pepper, send me a message and I'll, I'll link you up to the people who are organizing that. So there's a, so A, get involved and get everyone involved in democracy where you live. And B, do whatever you can to win at federal level, but don't stop there. We've got to get down to the state level if we're going to actually protect democracy from these ongoing attacks. And if you're in a state that's doing okay when it comes to democracy, pick another state where it's on the line and help there. I mean, that would be, a, my book goes through 30 steps that people should take. So that's the other one. Buy my book and you'll see a lot more. But, but those are some of the basics I walk through. Okay, so on your book, tell us how to buy it. So where can we find it? it it's all people. Not everyone loves to hear this. But it's on Amazon. When you write a book like I do, that is the place where most people buy it. Um, but you could probably go to an independent bookstore and order it there. It's often in libraries. If it's not in your local library, ask them to get it. Um, you can go to BarnesandNoble.com and get it there. You can go to my website, LaboratoriesOfAutocracy.com, and get it through there. So you know, whatever you do, honestly, I think if you if you're interested in everything we talked about. It's, it is a painful topic, but I think it's an important reality check. But then the last third of the book goes through all the things, to your last question, all the things we can all do to make things better. And, and it, once you realize this attack on democracy we're dealing with, I hope it inspires people to actually start fighting harder and differently than they have before. Uh, to me, as much as it's sort of a sobering wake-up call, it's also one that once you realize that we're in a bigger battle over our country's future than we ever realized. It's not just two sides, red versus blue. It's about democracy itself. My hope is it inspires people to think about all the other things they could be doing right now to lift democracy than they than they've typically done in the past. So, especially at a state and local level, because you can make a much bigger difference there. Totally. Uh, it, and I, you know, I look back at my own time, and my book, my book is, you know, it's a self criticism as much as it is anything else. I was a city council member. 
Did I think that every health clinic that I had oversight of should be registering voters? No, it never occurred to me. Or rec centers. Didn't occur to me. I, I didn't think of that. I should have. There is an opportunity to live democracy in so many ways that we don't think about every day. And we all have to do that. The scale of the attack on democracy is enormous. Don't, don't, we can't be naive. There is an entire operation in states across this country to subvert democracy, to pass these crazy laws that people don't agree with, and they know they don't agree with them. If we don't scale up our fight for democracy in each of our lives, if all we do is wait for Stacey Abrams to save us or Chuck Schumer, and we don't do it ourselves, we're not going to win. We're, we are not going to beat the, back an effort that is at a massive scale. So yeah, go through the book and it'll challenge you to think about what are all the things you could be doing right now that you're not doing to lift democracy. My hope is that helps people think through it. Well, I think that that's an excellent place to cut it. So David, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Great yeah, no, I really enjoy it. Okay, guys, that is it for today's episode of Moderate Party. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like it, rate it, subscribe, all the stuff. Um, it helps get the word out about the podcast. And if you're feeling politically homeless, that can be a very isolated feeling. So we want to make sure that people can find it. And with that, I will talk to you guys again soon. All right. Take care.